You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series produced by Painted Rock Advisors. This is our continuing discussion about the charitable, nonprofit, and philanthropic world. Thank you again for joining us. Now that we're in 2021 and the issues facing nonprofits and philanthropists continue to be impacted by COVID 19, so many challenges and questions to address. We look to our leaders in the field to provide direction, insights, and positive steps so we all can continue to make a difference in the world. Today we have the honor of hosting Michael Lawrence, the Chief Advancement Officer of Beit Izzy Shapiro, an Israeli nonprofit that's changing the lives of people with disabilities. Previously, Michael was the Chief Development Officer at the Jewish Agency for Israel and a Financial Resource Development Officer at the JDC, also known as the Joint. He is admitted to the bar as a lawyer in New Zealand, his home country, and in Israel, where he's been living since the year 2000. Welcome, Michael. Good to be here, Gary. Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, maybe we can start by sharing the path you took from uh, New Zealand to Israel. What was the decision-making process for you? Well, it's uh, certainly a uh, unique story. I think there's no week which goes by with, without me meeting someone who says, I've never met a New Zealand or I've never met a New Zealand Jew. So I'm, I'm a little bit unique in this field, a little bit unique. Um, I'll tell you that I grew up in a very Zionist family, a family that always supported Israel, was very involved in the Jewish community and also in the non-Jewish community. Uh, we have deep roots in Jerusalem. My grandfather, my mother's father, in fact, was born in Jerusalem in 1921. So uh, only at the age, four, at age 14 did the whole family move to New Zealand to escape what was at that time very difficult, what was then British Mandate Palestine. So growing up in youth movement in New Zealand and in, in, in B'nai Akiva, I came here for a year when I was 18. And then after my law degree and after being admitted to the bar, I gave it another shot and decided, you know, we are um, really privileged to live at a time when we can travel to Israel, Israel freely and make Aliyah and immigrate if we want. So in the year 2000, I did just that, came by myself. I had a sister here and began my personal life and my career here in Israel. So you met your wife in Israel then? I did. I met my, my wife here in Israel. She's actually Israeli born, but did spend uh, 10 years in, in New York as a, as a child and a teenager. And we actually met in the Jewish Agency for Israel, where I worked and really my first serious job in Israel. That's, that's where we met. Ah, I didn't know that. So you studied, you studied for a legal career, and then you end up in development and fundraising for the Jewish people and, and the broader community. How did that happen? Yeah, so that's, a, that's an interesting story. I, I have to say that, you know, I grew up in a family which was very involved in public life and political life in New Zealand. My father was the mayor of um, the capital city of New Zealand, deputy mayor for uh, 15 years. And he was also a senior partner in a law firm. So I could have, I imagine, stepped up and uh, moved into the legal profession if I'd wanted to. But once I made Aliyah, once I came to live in Israel, having grown up in a community that was so isolated and so far from the centers of Jewish life, I think when I came to Israel, I decided very early on that if I was going to live in Israel, 
I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I was going to invest deeply in getting to know that Jewish world and being involved in the Jewish world and getting to know Jewish communities, which I had really had very little contact with. I grew up in a time, like probably most of your listeners, where there was no internet and, and communication was different than it is today. So that was really my decision for my early 20s, I would say. So you worked for the Jewish Agency and JDC, which were both global and focused on the Jewish people and international communities. What were your reasons for working in that area specifically, as opposed to another organization in Israel at the time? So I have to say that um, once I got to know the top nonprofit field a little bit here in Israel and its relationship to global organizations and so on, you know, I did actually start off at the uh, Kobe Mandel Foundation, which is a somewhat smaller organization, but very, very, very impactful in memory of uh, two boys who were, were murdered by terrorists, in, in, if I recall, in 2002. And uh, there is really where I touched, you know, the nonprofit world and the American Jewish world for the first time. Uh, once I, I began to get to know the field and get to know people who are working in that in, in, in nonprofit, the joint, the JDC became really number one target on my wish I could list. And, uh, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I got there in the end. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, organization with tremendous impact globally for people in need, the largest Jewish humanitarian aid organization in the world. And it was really my training ground as, as, a, as a professional, it allowed me then to step up. They invest in their team and it's a great lesson for all of us who are leading teams and leading organizations. You invest in your team, you invest in your people, they either stay with you and they help you grow or they go on and they make great impact in the world. So I started in a big way at JDC and uh, then moved on to the Jewish agency because there was an opportunity really to lead a team globally, especially in North America and in Israel. And in the Jewish agency, you have one of the most historic organizations in Israel that really is building important bridges between Jewish people worldwide, between Israelis and Jews living overseas, and is still the leader in Aliyah and immigrating to Israel, which means a lot to me. So those two organizations are and really are foundations, I believe, in, in, in getting things done in the Jewish world and in connecting Jews to Israel and to each other. And as my audience knows, I did work for the Jewish agency for a couple of years and uh, work side by side with, uh, with Michael on a number of different projects. And it was uh, always a pleasure to work with you. Thank you, Gary. And indeed, and great to work with you as well. What, uh, what excites you now about your new role at Beit Izzy Shapiro? So Beit Izzy Shapiro, based in Ranana, actually is a 40-year-old organization. And I think what attracted, it, attracted me to it initially when I saw that they were looking for a new head of global fundraising was that they had real focus. That at, that at Beit Izzy Shapiro, um, there was a mission and a very, very, very strong story. Um, and it was going to be a change for me, and it's proven to be. I came from organizations that have dozens of programs, dozens of initiatives, work in a myriad of countries worldwide, in tens and tens of countries. But I decided that I really wanted to invest in a certain subject area, that I wanted focus. And Beit Izzy Shapiro has proven to be really an incubator for making change and bringing uh, holistic therapies and all kinds of different high-tech, state-of-the-art, modern interventions for people with disabilities and their families. And that goes for children and adults and everyone from those on the autism spectrum right through to uh, cerebral palsy and all kinds of different challenges that children and adults face. And on their campus in Ranana, it has become not only a hub for making lives, changing lives and making lives better and supporting families, 
but it's actually become a resource for the world, a resource for Israelis who are struggling with different kinds of disabilities, and also has become an advisory organization to the UN, which is extremely important, and now is teaming up with different communities, different cities around the world and different organizations to help them to help others. Um, it's become a leader, and I'm very proud to now be there. I'm a month in, and I'm very proud to be part of that effort to help people in Israel and around the world. Could you give us a little background on the history of how it got started 40 years ago? Yeah, sure. So um, it's named after a man called Izzy Shapiro, who was a South African, and he was doing a very, very impactful work in South Africa in his, in his, in his original hometown. And uh, when he made Aliyah, he really wanted to establish a center like this to support those who were uh, faced with disabilities and challenges in their life. And in fact, the story of Izzy Shapiro is that he actually passed away suddenly as he took his uh, one of his trips to the United States to gather support and gather people around him and do what we do today, fundraise and, and build partnerships. He passed away quite suddenly during that trip. And his daughter, um, Naomi, who is still deeply involved today as in leadership of Beit Izzy Shapiro, she took it upon herself together with siblings and family and friends to make sure that the dream of Izzy Shapiro came to, comes to fruition in Israel. And that it did, and it's now 40 years old, Beit Izzy Shapiro, the house of Izzy Shapiro in Ranana, and uh, it has become a leader. It has become a leader. It has become an organization with a good name, uh, a name, um, a good name because it cares deeply for the people it serves, um, a deeply transparent organization, which is very community involved and involves the community and has built tremendous partnerships around the world, both in philanthropy and with those of which it cooperates for the good of those who need it. So it's uh, that is a story, and it is a story that continues to unfold. They're, they do not rest, constantly trying to innovate and uh, bring new ideas and new solid and positive in, uh, interventions to the table. Now, on the funding side of, of Beit Izzy Shapiro, does most of the money come from Israel, or is it all global in nature, the way the other international organizations have been funded? It's a mix. We have actually quite a lot of support in Israel, which is good to see. It's, it's always good to see Israelis matching global philanthropy. We do have more than $4 million of global philanthropy, which comes in from the United States in particular. We have a Friends of, an American Friends of Beit Izzy Shapiro, very active in the United States with representatives currently, professional representatives in New York and in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, we have a, a UK, a British friends of Beta Z Shapiro, which is incredibly active, Canadian friends, and pockets of great support also in South Africa and in uh, other countries. We have very active boards. We have a great uh, groups, great teams of lay leaders, the chairs and the teams they've built around them. I have to say that I think, and we all know that it's one thing to have professionals, it's another thing to have passionate, energetic, willing, and able uh, lay leadership to work with those professionals. And we're seeing that out on the West Coast of the United States. We're certainly seeing that around the tri-state area and in the UK and Canada in particular. We have also in Israel, a board of very committed supporters. And that is one of the strengths of Beta Z Shapiro. They have been able to bring friends along with them. And it's a tremendous advantage and it's, it's, it's held us in good stead. So if you look forward to uh, 2021 and maybe the years beyond, 
What are the top priorities you have now that you've joined the organization? So first of all, we are looking to bring more of Beit Izzy Shapiro to a greater segments of the world. And that is on a, a few different levels. First of all, there is great need. Um, I think that we all know that in the, in the fields of inclusion and accessibility and, and, and disabilities, there's no end to that work. We may indeed be in the 21st century, but there is far more work for us to do both in advocacy and ensuring that governments around the world, but particularly here in Israel where Beit Izzy uh, is located, that we are advocating correctly and strongly. Um, we live in a world, thankfully, where there's a great deal of technology. And we at Beit Izzy Shapiro believe in being an incubator and a leader in developing new technology and using technology that exists in order to make life better for those with disabilities. And that's been certainly some of our uh, foci there. I would add that um, Beit Izzy Shapira does its very best to reach all Israelis, all segments of Israeli society. And we have a very strong um, emphasis now on working with the Arab community in Israel. And we have our center there that we've established in the town of Kilanswa. And we're working further and further to work with our with our um, Arab citizens in Israel. There is work to do there, lots of education to do there and in other parts of Israel. And we're determined to make Beit Izzy a place which exports goodness and exports change and exports hope for those families and children and adults who need us uh, hand in hand with them to make life better for them. Hi, Jonathan Boring have interrupted this program to introduce my own podcast. It's called the Social Spice Podcast. It is a show covering the ever-growing topic of social media marketing and just how a few simple tweaks to your digital outreach can change the entire course of your business. Let's get you cooking with fire. Again, the name of the podcast is the Social Spice Podcast, available on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, we're here to help. Now, this past year, we've all... Uh, suffered and continuing to suffer from the impact of COVID-19 on all of us, our families and our work experiences and environments. How has COVID-19 affected the work uh, for you all in Israel and in, in Beit Izzy Shapiro? I think it's been a challenge for all NGOs and for all nonprofits. I think we all know that, you know, the key to fundraising and to building philanthropic and strategic relationships is often being in the room with people, building those relationships. It's very hard to do. I don't think Zoom or these kinds of platforms necessarily uh, succeed in replacing what is normal human contact. Um, it's been a good plan B, and we've all been able to pivot, but we look forward to the days where we can all meet in person. Uh, for Beidizzi Shapiro, which provides critical services to those who need, I would remind you know, your listeners here that Beidizzi Shapiro isn't just about therapies. It's not just about technology. It's not just about advocacy and leadership. On the campus of Beit Izzy Shapiro, we have early childhood structures, what we call in Hebrew a ma'on, or a very young kindergarten, a creche, where, where children come, children with often severe or multiple disabilities. And they are reliant, and the families are reliant on those infrastructures and that programming in order to improve the lives of these children and give them a fighting chance to develop cognitively and physically and so on. We also have a school on campus for kids who really are facing difficulties in their lives. And when you are faced with a pandemic and all kinds of health regulations and difficulties, it has made it tough to continue this kinds of uh, programming on the same level. 
It's hard. We have all kinds of things related to hydrotherapy and all different kinds of physical, cognitive, and other therapies. Very hard to do in an environment where you have to. We, we must be very, very strict in terms of health regulations and making sure that we're not responsible, of course, for sharing any COVID with others. So it's been a challenge. Um, I have to say that of what I've learned and what I've seen, Beatty Shapiro has responded strongly. Um, they have come up with as, as much as possible to be able to continue to serve these communities and to serve these children and adults, to provide the infrastructures and the guidelines in place so that people can keep on coming and keep on receiving, whether virtually or actually in place. And we take care. We're making sure that we're staying in touch with the families and the children and so on and making sure that everyone is, is okay in coping. And at this moment, those educational structures, the, 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 the Ma'on, the young children, um, uh, kindergarten and uh, the school are operating within guidelines and we're thankful for that. One of the challenges in the United States right now with donors is that uh, donors who have given to arts organizations are still doing so as opposed to putting their money into other places that it's much more needed during the pandemic like food banks and job transition programs and things of that nature. How do you find your donors or the people that support your institution and, and, and their giving? I think that every philanthropist has to choose for themselves, you know, what resonates with them. It's our job and I think the job of every NGO and nonprofit to get our story out there and to bring the importance of our work uh, out there uh, for people to see and to hear. And it's not always easy. It's a very, very competitive market. Beidizi Shapiro, thankfully, although it's not the largest Israeli organization out there in the United States and elsewhere, partnering with foundations and with philanthropists and so on, Beidizi Shapiro has a good name. And it has a name now spanning what we're now into our fifth decade. And it is led by a committed team of lay leaders, some fabulous families which stand behind the organization, together with a, a CEO, Amir Lerner, who is um, very smart, very entrepreneurial, very open, very approachable. And I think this all comes together um, to give a message to our donors and potential donors that we're worth talking to. We're making change. We are a leader, an incubator, a thinker, and we do not rest because we believe there will always be more work to do for the populations that we serve. And I think that this has actually built tremendous bridges to, to our donors. And we're finding that our donors are long lasting and they stick by us because we build solid relationships. We don't take relationships for granted and we're investing in those relationships. And I think that's key to philanthropy and key to maintaining good friendships with people who care about the same things that we do. One of the challenges I think for fundraisers and you know, certainly your role as chief development officer when you train staff or young, younger staff that are getting into the industry and learning how to raise money, that the relationship building is the most important part. And one of the problems I think in America is that the generation Xers, uh, even some of the millennials, um, really don't know how to build relationships. Do you find that uh, true in your work or is it just something I'm saying? So it's certainly, I mean, between the generations, we see changes and it's, you know, Gary, a lot has written today and spoken today about the very significant wealth that is changing hands or will change hands to, to a new generation or new generations of folks who will be making decisions 
perhaps not like those of their ancestors who came before them, philanthropic decisions. So this is, of course, an area that needs to be um, focused on by all nonprofits and by all development staff and lay leadership. I'm not sure I would pinpoint um, the challenge with um, millennials or other generations quite like that, but I would say the following, and that is that people are looking for different things today. Uh, people are looking to be far more hands-on. They want to meet the project. Philanthropists today, particularly young philanthropists or those looking to get involved, um, they want to do it um, themselves. They want to be involved in the decision-making. They want to touch the people they help and the projects. There's less of the interest, for example, in I will give to one central body and I will rely on that central body to distribute the funds as they see fit and I will, and, and I will trust them. Families today, individuals today, with the internet, with pre-COVID at least, significant travel globally, people were able to meet um, the projects themselves and get involved. And I think that that's what nonprofits need to be thinking about. How do we engage people at the level at which they are and in the way that they want to be engaged? And those nonprofits which recognize that change and engage people like that, I think we'll find that they'll come to bring new friends uh, to their organizations and those from the generations to come as well. It's a, a lot of talk about impact investing, which is exactly what you're talking about. And I know when I was with Technion, you know, the best thing that we could do was get a donor in front of a professor or researcher about the work that they did. Uh, the challenge, of course, was that the researchers didn't want to always talk to the donors. So that was always an ongoing challenge for me. 100%. Um, let me uh, go to a little different place now. Over your career, you've had many relationships and uh, closed many gifts for the, the different organizations you've been with. Tell us about your favorite donor experience. Was there one donor that sticks out to you as this was a great relationship that I built and, uh, and what happened there? The one that comes to mind particularly is a very significant, generous family in New Jersey who I worked with both the family and with their foundation and their professionals there. And what I enjoyed particularly there, and we're talking here about foundation that had given you know, many millions of dollars over many years, um, they were deeply invested in the organization and they were looking for a conversation. And so this was a conversation that went two way. And those are the kinds of, uh, those are the kinds of relationships that I enjoy particularly where we learn what the opportunities are and what the challenges are in the fields in which we work. And then we decide together what's going to bring about systematic change. What's going to bring about change that will last and what are the needs and who's partnering with us and who can they bring to the table and who can we bring to the table? And I think that one of the most uh, satisfying, um, most satisfying years that I had with that foundation um, were those where we really, we really came to an agreement on what is required and where we need them most. And they were able to bring their experts to the table and we were able to bring ours. And together we had a meeting of minds. And I think when you have a meeting of minds with a strategic donor, that's a relationship which can last. And uh, I think that's most important. Very good. Now, how about telling us about a donor that you got that you didn't get, the, the donor that got away? There's always the donors which get away. Um, I think the key to the donors who get away, Gary, as you know, is, you know, not that you never accept no for an answer, but you never, you never give up on them because truthfully, I don't think anyone gives up on us. It's not always that our, uh, 
that that what we're doing quite fits how they feel they can impact the world but i believe it's always worth having the relationship and there have been many of like like that for me but i think it's about continuing to engage especially when i come into the united states i'm making sure to continue to meet up with them continue to be a friend to them and a guide to them and them to me and continue to engage with their family and so on uh, you know there's been uh, opportunities where uh, you make the ask gary and you think you've done your homework and you think you're there you expect good things and sometimes it comes out a smaller gift than you would expect and sometimes you know it's okay to say that's not quite the fish that got away if you excuse the analogy you're just on your way you know that's the beginning that's the beginning of a relationship you know i had a prospect once at the technion i met him for the first time in silicon valley and it was our first time meeting and he gave me a $20,000 check. And I went, well, that's a really nice check. Thank you very much. But why are you giving me a check? And he says, well, I know you're going to ask me for money. So I figured I'd just give it to you up front. And I yeah, said, yeah. no, 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 I'm not going to take your check. You take it. We need to get to know each other first and figure out what you want to do and what I want to do and whatever. And he was like, you're not taking my check. And I said, no, not yet. Maybe later on, I'll ask you for a gift. And about a year and a half later, he gave me a million and a half dollars. So that was a good, a good experience. But I don't that's, advise that's, to people to turn down checks very often. No, no. But that's an amazing story, Gary. And that's exactly right on the button that we're talking here about building relationships. We're not talking here about a checkbook or a bank account. People give to people as much as they give to project. And I think the more we build trust and we build that meeting of minds and that uh, intellectual engagement, uh, with the people who we need the most and we want them to partner with us and let it be a real relationship. Show them that there's a, there's a sense of caring and a sense of interest in their lives and their people and in their family. And it should be genuine. And then, and then good things can come of it and major impact. Yeah, very good. That's certainly true. Um, if someone of my listeners want to connect with uh, Bait Izzy Shapiro, how do they do that? First of all, I'm happy to give out my email address. And uh, of course, we have a website. The website is uh, Bait Izzy, B-E-I-T-I-S-S-I-E dot org dot I-L. Bait Izzy dot org dot I-L. And my email address, Michael, that is M-I-C-H-A-E-L at Bait Izzy dot org dot I-L. And of course, people can connect with me on Twitter and on LinkedIn and Facebook and however, which way they choose. I'd love to hear from them. We've got a lot to show and uh, would welcome certainly people visiting us when they're in Israel post-COVID. And uh, there are plenty of opportunities to get involved now, even when we can't travel and are happy to share with them and uh, let them into the good work that we're doing. I hope my listeners have enjoyed today's podcast and uh, next month we will have another one. Uh, and we look forward to having you there. Thank you all for listening to The Road to Philanthropy. Thank you for listening to the podcast, The Road to Philanthropy. And thank you, Michael Lawrence, again for joining us today and give us insights into how nonprofits work in Israel and the work of Beit Issy Shapiro. We look forward to welcoming all our guests back next month. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.